Well, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for your interest in helping share our story. For our listeners at Mind What Matters, Laura has had um, breast cancer for 14 years. Is that right, Laura? Yes. And she started a phenomenal organization and nonprofit called Hope Scarves. And um, I just can't wait to hear all about it. I want to know why you decided to start the organization, um, who it supports, how you support people, and, and just tell a little bit about your story. Just to start at the beginning of the cancer experience um, takes us back to 2007 um, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 30 years old and seven months pregnant and um, like any cancer diagnosis, it was surprising and disruptive to our family. But, you know, I think in particular, just being so young and also, um, expecting our second child. It was just a really scary time for our family. And I have no family history. Um, I was a having very healthy pregnancy. I'm a runner and a yogi and eat healthy, you know, didn't have any of the, um, the typical things, the typical factors that might, you know, um, cause breast cancer, um, as we know, but I think we know, you know, more broadly that cancer happens to a lot of people who, you know, for no explanation. Um, but I, um, shortly after I was diagnosed, a friend of a friend named Kelly, um, from North Carolina sent me a box of scarves and a note that said, you can do this. And it meant so much to me to get those scarves from Kelly, just knowing this other young woman had faced cancer helped me believe I could do it too. And I wore her scarves throughout my treatment and um, just felt her love and support every time I put them on. This stranger that I, you know, I had never met, um, just, you know, her reaching out to me to support me um, brought me so much strength. And so I went through a year of treatment. Um, I started chemotherapy right away. I had four rounds while I was pregnant. Oh and, my gosh. Um, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Yeah, it was, um, you know, here I was trying to have like this really healthy pregnancy and, you know, I stopped drinking pop and uh, alcohol and, you know, like microwaving my lunch meat, like all the things, you know, to, and then I, I found myself sitting in the chemo chair, just pumping toxic chemicals into my veins while I felt our unborn child kick. You know, it was just, it was surreal. It was just crazy. But um, Bennett, our son was born full term and healthy. And by the way, um, that's the name of my older brother too. Oh, really? Yeah. I love that. Um, He, one of the kind of the running jokes that um, brought us a little joy in the midst of all this really overwhelming, crazy stuff is that Um, I had a drug called adromycin cytoxin, which is often referred to as the red devil because it's like Kool-Aid red. And um, Bennett had four rounds of that with me and he was born with bright red hair. (laughs) (laughs) And so we were all like, I mean, I I have no red hair in my family, neither does my husband. Um, It was like completely a shock. And um, 
kind of just like, what in the world? Like when I pictured what our child would look like, I never imagined like flaming red hair. And um, he's still to this day, he's 13. And he just has the most beautiful bright red hair. Mm. And um, so he kind of kind of lived up to our, our nickname of our, our little devil um, and continues to, you know, to this day, he's just a big hearted, um, super spirited kid and really a miracle in our family. Um, and a reminder, you know, that through the midst of all this hardship that there was such joy and um, excitement in his birth, even in the midst of you know, everything we were going through. Um, but it, I was so relieved to have him born. I just was so glad to have him out of my cancerous body and um, for him to be healthy. And um, nine days after he was born, I was back in the chemo chair, continuing my treatments. And then I had a double mastectomy and reconstruction and, um, you know, all of the protocol of early stage breast cancer treatment. Um, we lived what, kind of in this what alternative reality. You, Laura, what stage were you when you were first diagnosed? I was stage two. Okay. So I had a, a small tumor and it had a micrometastasis to my sentinel lymph node. Okay. So, you know, all the protocol of the treatment was successful and... Um, I had a scan after my, you know, my treatments, I was deemed in remission, no sign of, um, active cancer. And so I reached out to Kelly to get her address and send the scarves back to her. But she said, um, just find someone else who can use them. And so I went to a conference with the young survival coalition, which is a, um, organization that supports women with breast cancer diagnosed under the age of 40. And I, um, I took those scarves with me thinking, you know, maybe I'll meet someone I can pass them on to. And one afternoon I met Roberta, um, she's from Pittsburgh and um, she was newly diagnosed and wearing this wig that you could tell was not super comfortable. And I um, approached her with my scarves and told her about Kelly and told her my story. And I um, gave her the scarves and showed her how to wear them. and it was just so moving to me to, to pass along my strength and my encouragement to her and realizing in that moment how much it helped me reflect on what I had gone through and how I could share my strength with her now, just as Kelly had done with me. And um, that afternoon, I started thinking about that experience, about receiving them from Kelly and wearing them, but then also passing them on to Roberta and how meaningful all of that was to me in um, facing cancer. And so I started thinking about creating a nonprofit um, that I called Hope Scarves. And um, I had spent my entire career in nonprofit. So I had professional experience in fundraising and communications and you know management of a nonprofit, but I had never created one. So, um, I just kind of started dreaming about it. And um, fast forward um, 12 years later, um, Hope Scarves is now an international nonprofit organization. We've sent over 22,000 Hope Scarves to every state in 27 countries. And we have, um, our oldest recipient is 97. Our youngest is six months old. And we support people facing all types of cancer, not just breast cancer, 
Um, and the mission and the, the work that we do is very much intentionally simple and very much the same experience that I had in receiving that first scarf. Um, just trying to create connection and love, providing a practical resource in the scarf, you know, a beautiful example of resiliency, but also just the connection of stories and that common ground that is so important when you're facing a cancer diagnosis and can feel really isolating and um, alone. And so it's been amazing to see how that simple experience that I had has turned into this beautiful community and organization. And um, we have become known as the sisterhood of the traveling scarves. And it's just- oh, I love that name. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a beautiful way for me personally to turn my heartbreak into hope and to make meaning out of what has happened to our family. And, you know, I just didn't want it to end on a sad note, on a, you know, cancer having the last word. I wanted it to turn it into something um, more beautiful and, you know, more grounded in love than in pain or sadness. Um, and then unfortunately, um, as it is every cancer patient's worst nightmare, in 2014, uh, cancer returned and I um, just had some low back pain. I thought I had been, you know, tweaked my back running and I was doing some, a lot of trail running or maybe just had been sitting at my computer a lot because I'd been working a lot for Hope Scarves. And um, instead we found I had a an orange sized tumor in my sacrum and it proved out to be breast cancer. So that is, um, that diagnosis was a metastatic stage four breast cancer. So I think it's important to um, just recognize the difference. A lot of people don't understand the difference between an early stage breast cancer diagnosis to stage one through three, that is, um, limited to your breast or the lymph nodes in you know your armpit like that's a general breast cancer diagnosis and um, a primary um, right. diagnosis and that is survival it's treatable survivable you know, that's women and men that live 10 20 30 40 years as survivors um but once the cancer spreads to other parts of your body typically your bones your lung liver your brain it becomes metastatic stage four. And the average life expectancy is right now is two to three years. And there's no cure. There are treatments, but there's no um, promise of remission. Once you become metastatic, you're constantly in treatment for the rest of your life. And for some people, treatments work and slows the growth of the cancer. And that was my case for a long time. I actually have been living with metastatic disease for over seven years. And for about five and a half of those, I was really, really healthy. You would never know that I had stage four terminal cancer. I was running and traveling and leading a nonprofit and, and just living well with um, metastatic disease. But as it goes, because we don't know enough about this disease, um, it mutated and it outsmarted the treatments I was on and now it's spread to the lining of my lung, the lining of my abdomen, and it's not controlled right now. 
So um, I'm on a, a pretty toxic IV treatment and um, I'm really seeing a decline in my health over the last year, year and a half. Um, so it's been a really, you know, it's been a really big struggle these last couple of years. But one of the things I'm the most proud of at Hope Scarves is that in 2014, when I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, we paused as an organization and really looked at what we were doing. And if we were gonna change the way people experience cancer, we wanted to expand our mission to also include research. And so we added a metastatic breast cancer research fund initiative and now um, have raised over $1.5 million to support research for metastatic breast cancer. And it's really rounded out the work that we do um, to support people with scarves and stories, but also just acknowledge the importance of science and research. And um, our research fund, you can give directly to that. 100% of the donations go to research and are doubled um, with anonymous matching gifts. So it's pretty, it's been pretty awesome in the same way that, you know, I created Hope Scarves originally after my initial diagnosis um, to have created the research fund after my metastatic diagnosis as a way again to say, okay, how do I turn this into something meaningful that will help others? And um, so um, though now our family is in a really hard spot, my health is declining and um, I'm the sickest I've ever been since cancer entered our lives. You know, we're still just trying to live and love and find, um, find joy, you know, even in the midst of this, um, regardless of what comes next, you know, just kind of take it one day at a time. Well, you know, you are sort of the epitome in my mind of, um, what real strength is. And I think that that's why your story touched me so much. Um, you know, in my family, our cancer story looks different. Um, we sort of had two cases that oddly enough were diagnosed, um, two days apart from one another. Mm. Um, my mom with breast cancer on a Tuesday, and then my older brother on a Thursday with Hodgkin's disease. And um, I know, right? It's, it's just kind of like, it's funny because when I tell people that, that don't know that about me or my family, you know, they just kind of look at me like, are you kidding? <laughs> you know, like that doesn't yeah. happen to anyone. Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, my mom was not diagnosed. She knew that she had the lump and it was in the process of being biopsied when, um, when my brother had, had his, uh, or when his mass was first found, um, my parents got just a call. He was only 21 at the time and living out in Colorado, working on this ranch. And I think he woke up in the middle of the night thinking that he had had a panic attack of some sort. Um, and he had had this itching that had been going on for probably a year and a half. Um, and we just kept taking him to dermatologist after dermatologist. And, you know, nobody could figure out where this itching was coming from. Um, now, mind you, this was 20 years ago. Um, so he calls my parents in the middle of the night and says, you know, I, I can't breathe. I, I must be having a panic attack. I can't think of any other reason. 
So they sent him to hospital and sure enough, they did a CAT scan there and they found a mass the size of a football in his chest. So it was just one of those things where, you know, anyone who knows a lot about cancer, Hodgkin's is actually a very curable form, um, but not at stage four. Um, So Mm -hmm. he had, you know, that experience. In fact, I still remember when we walked into his hospital room. Um, he looked at my mom and he said, mine's bigger than yours is <laughs> like referring to his, his tumor, um, you know, and just obviously, you know, he's a 21 year old kid, but he's trying to put everyone at ease, um, about the whole situation. And, you know, I think everyone was just in shock and we went through this period of, you know, is this really happening? You know, this has to be some sort of dream. It's, it's not real, Um, and he went through treatment for about nine to 12 months, I guess, and was in remission several times. Um, his came back, um, I think after the second or third time he did a bone marrow transplant and, you know, back 20 years ago, those were very, very dangerous procedures. And, um, you know, he barely lived through that. And I think that the Mm -hmm. ultimate decision was if it comes back after the, after the bone marrow transplant, you know, I'm not going to go through that again. Um, mm-hmm. So ultimately he, he passed away. He lost his battle. Um, and my mom, strangely enough, hers, because it was caught so very early, you know, she just had a lumpectomy and some radiation and she lived through the whole thing. Um, and I can't imagine what that was probably like for her, yeah. um, you know, being the survivor and being the mother. Um, I think it was probably... Mm-hmm just, it's the worst nightmare, right? For any mom. And she was able to just stay so positive. And I remember she gave the first Relay for Life speech, um, actually in Connecticut, it was the first Relay for Life that they had had. And she gave the opening um, speech for the very first one. And this couldn't have been more than six months after he passed away. Um, It was just remarkable. Mm. Uh, Her ability to kind of just press on and, and keep moving forward. And you know, sadly, probably 10 years after that is when she first started showing significant signs of cognitive decline. And, you know, same with you, there had never been breast cancer in our family. And now here we are with Alzheimer's and there had never been any, uh, you know, Alzheimer's in our family or dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really a, a tough thing to kind of digest that here we are again, you know, with this tragedy that is just going to go on and on. I mean, Alzheimer's is not quick and it's something that really takes, you know, 10 to 15 years as you move through the process for a lot of families, you know, it can be very rapid, but, but most people don't get that lucky. Um, And it's, Mm -hmm. it's a particularly vicious disease in the way that it sort of strips people very slowly of who they Mm -hmm. are. And you kind of have this grieving process that happens um, you know, while the person's really still there and and still right. with you. But, you know, I went through a very hard period um, of my mom's diagnosis. I was her primary caregiver for almost a decade. And, you know, while I was having small children and, you know, I was angry. I was really angry for a long time that, you know, we went through all of that with Michael and with her cancer and that she survived only to, you know, have this happen. Um, and I wasn't very accepting of her disease for, for a long while, to be honest with you. Um, I kind of did every protocol out there, every supplement out there, 
you know, anything and everything I could try that was going to halt this disease and, you know, ultimately change the course of what was going to happen. And of course I I couldn't do that, um, nor could anyone. Um, But it wasn't until I kind of finally accepted it and said, okay, you know, this would really make my mom mad if she knew, you know, mm-hmm. how, how I was acting about this. And so I decided to, to really get active and involved, um, first with the Alzheimer's association, and then ultimately deciding, um, that because caregiving was what I was doing, um, that that's really the way that I wanted to lead, um, in this community was by starting my own nonprofit. And I, think the reason I was so drawn to you was because, you know, I've, I've known two or three other people just in my like inner circle that have started nonprofits, but I haven't seen anyone that's done it in the midst of pain, um, in mm-hmm. the midst of just really struggling. And I just think it takes so much courage. I mean, I know myself, I've been scared to death and, you know, I'd, I certainly don't have a background in, in nonprofit work and I'm kind of figuring this out as I go. Um, but I'm not sick either, you know, I mean, you've Mm -hmm. done this despite your own personal struggle to just get out of bed every day. And, um, you know, the name of our nonprofit is mind what matters. And Mm -hmm. I mean, Laura, you're just an amazing example of doing just that. You know, a lot of, a lot of what we do is, is kind of brain health and awareness, but, you know, at the end of the day, also a huge chunk of that is just learning how to take care of yourself and your mental health and, um, Anytime that I can share someone's story who I think is so inspiring and can sort of lead others to ultimately get up out of bed, no matter what they're going through and put one foot in front of the other and make a difference. Um, I'm going to shout that as loud as I can. Um, and that's really why I wanted to have you on the podcast is I just mm-hmm. wanted to get your story out there. Um, I just think you're remarkable. And obviously my heart just breaks for what you're going through and you know, I don't know from firsthand experience what it feels like to go through chemo, but I've certainly watched somebody I love and um, it's just, man, tears your body apart, you know? Um, Well, there's so many similarities to um, facing any kind of traumatic experience or heartbreak, um, regardless if it's cancer or Alzheimer's or the loss of a child or you know, a house fire, like whatever you're Mm -hmm. going through, um, there is this, there's so many, um, you know, just think similarities to how you face the challenges. And I get asked that a lot. How are you smiling and living, um, despite all, you know, with everything that you're going through. And I think one of the first things I always say, and I, I try to be really honest about this um, in, you know, in public and in, in social media or on my blog is that I am not always happy. <laughs> I'm not always smiling. Um, I share the struggle just as much as I share the joy. And I think that that's a big first step. It's acknowledging that there's both mm-hmm. and that I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not striving for a positive attitude. Um, I believe that what I've been able to do is hold both joy and fear in the same hand Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so often I think 
we're conditioned to um, be happy when the problem is solved, right? Like right. the, um, you know, we see things as either sick or healthy, you know, um, weak or strong. And what really is more reflective of life is that it's, it's you are both of those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. I am very sick, but yet there's parts of me that are very healthy and I can't walk um, to my bedroom from the living room uh, without a, a break. I'm, but at the same time, my mind is very strong. I'm weak and I'm strong. And um, I think that that's one of the things that I really had to come to understand that I didn't understand before um, my cancer diagnosis that has helped me be like, I am not waiting for the cancer to be cured or the scan to be improved to be joyful and to be happy um, and to be, you know, to give love and receive love because I would waste so much time. And, um, you know, I think that's in the same way with Alzheimer's, um, you can't wait for a resolution. You have to do it afraid and you have to find joy in the midst of the pain. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really hard. And some days there's more joy than pain. Some days there's more pain than joy. And I think allowing for that to happen and acknowledging and not pushing away the sadness or the anger or the grief or the rage, um, but allowing space for those feelings right along with the joy. And I'll feel them in the same time. You know, yeah. this, so this weekend we had family visiting. We did a um, little Thanksgiving and birthday um, time together. And I was so happy to see my nieces and my nephews and just to be together with my family. It's so much joy. But at the same time, that cut so deep mm-hmm. with the pain of me picturing that event happening and me not there. And what will my children feel on my birthday next year if they can't physically hug me? And so literally in the midst of blowing out my candles, I am feeling joy and gratitude and immense grief and terror. Yeah. Like the exact, in in the exact same breath. And, um, you know, I think that that's probably true for a lot of people who are facing Alzheimer's and really for people facing anything um, that's really disruptive in their life. And um, the other thing that I think I work really hard on is not living in the perceived future, Mm -hmm. but grounding myself in today. And um, I came to that understanding with the help of my counselor in that I was constantly, you know, living in the what ifs and the whens and the hows of the future that was terrifying me and was consuming me with, um, when, you know, I worry like, well, what, what will my children, you know, how will my children be in high school if I'm not here? And how will, um, and, you know, how could, how could I possibly, like, how can I create, how can I cause them the biggest fear and sadness of their life? I, me, their mom, whose job is to protect them is going to cut them deeper than any other pain they've ever experienced. 
by dying. I mean, like I couldn't can let go of that grief and that pain. But then I'm, you know, driving my kids to soccer practice and they're just babbling in the back seat about their day. And I'm totally not listening because I'm just looking back at the, you know, in my mirror at this bubbly little six-year-old and thinking, I'm going to cause you the worst pain of your life. And so I had to shift to really letting go of that living in the perceived future and just being present right there in that car, driving that kiddo to soccer practice and how hearing did, his laugh and talking how, to him. How did you do that? I mean, how? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I think with the help of my counselor, with being really very intentional, like if I would, if I would find myself looking up in that mirror and, and wanting to just start crying, I would take a deep breath, you know, ground myself in today, look back in the mirror and, you know, Bennett, tell me again about what happened at lunch. And I would just listen and I would just be there in that car with him, not 10 years ahead in my mind, worried about what was going to be happening because I was right there. I didn't, I just didn't want to lose whatever time I had because I was so worried about what was coming. Right. And I look back on these past seven years of being living with this terminal cancer diagnosis. And I am so glad that I figured out how to do that because we really, really lived. We really just embraced each other and lived. And I, you know, I was scared. I was terrified. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It wasn't like I just like, you know, stuck my head in the sand. I had, I lived scan to scan. I was on constant treatments. It was really hard, but there was more laughter than tears and more joy than sadness. And I'm so glad I figured that out because now when I am really in these declining stages, um, I don't have any regret. I'm just so glad that I took the trip and I climbed the mountain and I rappelled down the waterfall and I was the first to jump in and swim with the sharks, you know, and showed my kids, you know, like, this is how you, you do this crazy thing. And, you know, like, I just, I didn't, I lived, I fully lived. And I'm so glad because I can't, you know, I can't get that time back. And um, it would be so, so sad to be as sick as I am now and, and look back and think, God, I wasted the healthy years by being afraid of this coming. Because it came either way. Well, you but know, I what? wasn't worried about it. That's, that's something that people just should take away period, just period the end from this. And yeah. you shouldn't have to have a terminal diagnosis to live your life that way. Um, it should it's be so hard. It I is. Didn't, I did not, I did not have, I would, I'm not. And the other thing is I'll give all of this perspective up in a heartbeat, just be a healthy, totally oblivious, wrapped <laughs> up in stupid things healthy person. I know, you know like isn't I would it, give it all away. Isn't it amazing? I know I feel the exact same just with what we've gone through already. I'm like, nope. Yes. It makes me, you know, have empathy and yes, it makes me more understanding of, of life's most difficult challenges, but yeah, same. I give it all back. I mean, if I could have my brother sitting right here next to me and a conversation with my mom that she could follow along with. Absolutely. Like I'd go back oh. to being shallow in a, in a nanosecond. Right. You know? Right. But you know, something you said, um, I just want to like 
not that I'm going to teach you anything about this call today. I mean, period. But you said, you know, you're going to be the one cutting them so deep. And I would just argue that you're also the one who has probably taught them the most about love, the most about empathy, the most about understanding and depth than anyone else could possibly. And Mm -hmm. in life, there is not a greater gift than that. There's no, there's no moral you could teach them or value you could impart or, um, life lesson that you could ever, you know, intrinsically develop in them more than that. That's more important. Um, and, and, you know, I do, I, you know, I, it's hard because I do know that and I, I recognize that, but still as their mom and just this idea that they like haven't felt as much pain as they will, yeah. you know, with losing, it's our family being, you know, torn apart and that I can do nothing to stop it is just, it's so agonizing. It's so, you know, but I'm, I am, I do feel, um, you know, that I have poured myself into them and my husband and our family. It's just, we're, we're an amazing unit. We call ourselves team Mac. (laughs) And, um, you know, and I, I have a really, really great husband. They are going to be just fine. They are going to find their way through this and thrive. Um, but I just, I just want to be here. You know, of course you do. Of course I don't want him not, I don't want to not be able to, I want to be a part of it. I have major FOMO. <laughs> um, well, but you are, you are going to be here and, you know, I'll just share with you a little secret. Um, I have done quite a bit of like research recently into some, like this whole ayahuasca thing. I don't know if you've heard about that, but um, I interviewed somebody that, that has done it, who they're the least likely person you would ever expect in the whole wide world to go into the jungle and do ayahuasca. But um, she, they, they went into this like medical clinic in Costa Rica and did it. And, you know, she tells me just absolutely crazy stories about this whole thing. And the fact that she got a glimpse into heaven um, mm-hmm. in this other realm. And, you know, and she, she looked at me and she said, Liz, I lost my religion and found God. And um, we're all connected and we've all always been there and we will all continue to always exist and be there. It's just a different dimension. She says, it's mm-hmm. like, um, and who knows, who knows, right? If this is all true or not, um, might be total, you know, mumbo jumbo, but I'm going to cling to it because I love it. Um, I love the idea that, that we're always, that we've always, always have been together and that we always will be together. Yeah. Uh, I just think. And I'm, in, I, in I, 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 I believe that too. I believe that too. My, my friend, I lost, I um, had a friend who died of cancer a couple of years ago and she used to always talk about um, when she left her human suit. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, she's like, I don't know exactly what happens next, but I thought that was a good way of putting it that, you know, she said, I just have to leave this human suit. That's right. And, um, you know, I think the other thing that I feel, you know, we don't know, we know, none of us can know what happens, but I do know what happens when I've lost, I've lost my grandma and I've lost friends. And, um, the thing that I do know is that love is greater than death and that 
I, you know, I, I don't ever, I hate when people are like in past tense, like I loved my, my grandma so much. I, I always just say, I love my grandma. I know. And I feel her love and you know, that that didn't at all diminish when she passed on that the love and her, just her influence in me will always be a part of me. And that brings me a lot of comfort. And I, um, work, I'm, I don't, you know, teenage boys, they're 13 and 16. They don't want to sit down and talk about this with me, but I write to them and, and, you know, just collections of these thoughts. And, you know, I really feel like, I hope they'll just always feel my presence. Not like as a nagging, like mom in their ear, but as just the presence of my love. And you'll be there in the best. That's true. You'll be there yeah. in the best moments. How are they handling it now? Do they talk about it with you at all? Well, you know, I think the thing that's interesting and um, I've been reassured by my counselor and counselors of, you know, adolescents um, and counselor that work with our boys is that um, they're age appropriately um, just kind of disassociating with it, yeah. which is a coping skill for a 13 and a 16 year old is that, you know, they are helpful. If they, you know, if I need my water refilled or I need, you know, them to help me get something around the house, like they're, they're real quick to be helpful. But if I'm like, would you like, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, do you think we could watch a movie together this afternoon and just spend time together? Like, no, I'm going to play basketball with my friends or I got homework or, you know, they don't hang out with me. They don't, don't snuggle with me on the couch and talk about how much they love me. Um, but that's just where they are. Um, and so I think that they cope by disassociating, you know, and they're really, um, into their sports and their teams and their friends and school and have just, they have great lives. And so they lead those and then they come home to, you know, what we're facing here. But my husband and I are are really just trying to keep as things as normal as possible for yeah. as long as possible. You know, again, even though we know I'm in a declining stage and the treatments are really hard and I'm a fragment of who I once was, um, we are still trying to make our house and our, you know, our home be a mm-hmm. comfortable place and not, you know, all cancer, sickness, awfulness. Um, and so you know, I think they're, you know, I check in with them. My husband checks in with them. I have other caring adults in their lives who check in with them and they're doing pretty good. Well, if it's any consolation, I handled my brother the same way. I can remember him trying to talk to me and saying, you know, Hey, like Lizzie, let's talk about this. You know, I mean, this is a big deal and you know, you and I are really close and can we talk about it? And me just being like, Nope. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I was so quick to shut him down and and say, everybody keeps trying to make me talk about this and I don't want to. Um, right. So let's just not, you know, right. and, and it's taken me a lot of years and a lot of perspective to understand that because I used to for years have regret about that. You know, I would say, God, mm-hmm. I wish I had talked to him. I wish I had shared all these things I was feeling at the time. But the truth of the matter is, is that kids at that age, and and I was just that age of your sons. I was, um, I guess I was 11 when he was diagnosed, but you know, more 12, 13 when, when he was diagnosed terminal and, um, you know, 
you don't have the emotional maturity to handle mm-hmm. a conversation like that. You just don't, right. it's not there. It's not developed yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a blessing in a way. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's just God's way of kind of protecting kids through things that are, are just that too hard to think about, you yeah. know, like too difficult to grasp onto. Um, yeah. but you sound no surprise, like just mm-hmm. like you're being the best mom in the whole world by giving them that space and, and just giving them that understanding. Um, I mean, you're just, you're remarkable all the way around. Um, mm-hmm. how are you feeling? I mean, just on a day-to-day basis. Um, oh, I feel like crap. <laughs> are, you um, are you in a lot of pain? I, well, I, I, I am in kind of a, a cyclical, um, cancer cycle of how I feel. So I have chemo every Wednesday and, um, I have a, just the toxicity and the side effects of the chemo right. that affects me throughout the week from a, from fatigue and nausea to, um, swelling and, um, just a variety, you know, a variety of things that are side effects. And then from the cancer, I have, um, a tremendous amount of fluid. So I have a Plurex catheter in my abdomen that I drain at home and, I can drain if I, I mean, if I drained it dry, I would dry, probably drain 1500, you know, milliliters every couple of days. So I'm carrying around a tremendous amount of extra weight in my abdomen and it's really swollen and it goes, the fluid goes into my back and down my legs and, and I'm just really uncomfortable. And then I also have fluid in my lungs. So, um, I go into a, the hospital every two weeks to have a thoracentesis that drains the fluid from my lungs. I did have a I saw that. I lung. saw a post about that that you did. That's just insane. Yeah. How much so I do that out. every two weeks. Um but I did and I did have a home drain a drain to drain at home that um had stopped working. So I, we're talking about putting another drain in, but I'm just like I really don't want the pain of the drain for always. And I instead I have like one day of, you know, going into the hospital, having the procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it fills up, I have to be on oxygen. So I, I can't, I don't have enough um, lung capacity to breathe mm-hmm. um, on my own. So I have to have oxygen to get around my house. Um, but after it drains, I have about 10 days that I can um, breathe pretty well without the oxygen, which is just crazy because I'm a marathon runner. I am a yogi. You know, I, I have grounded myself with my breath for years and years and years and, you know, practiced deep breathing as a, you know, and, um, relaxation and meditation. And, um, to now, I mean, I can't even do like a three count inhale. I mean, I just get really shallow, you know, breaths. And, um, I actually, when I first started having these problems, with my lung, I was training for a half marathon. My lungs were so strong that I had one lung com- like practically completely f- surrounded by fluid. And I ran the marathon because wow. my other lung was so strong. I mean, I, that's just where I started from. And so now to go from that to where I am today is just really crazy. But um, I have 
I'm working on, you know, making peace with it. I've, I now have a wheelchair and um, I don't need it every day, but it has allowed me to have a little bit more freedom to um, be able to go and do more actually. Um, so like my, our family took a trip um, a couple of weeks ago. We all, we love to see national parks and we actually had a backcountry permit to hike down and sleep in the Grand Canyon for three nights um, during the first spring break of COVID and we canceled it. So um, of course now I couldn't possibly attempt to do that, but I still wanted to see the Grand Canyon with the kids. And so a couple of weeks ago, we went out and did um, Zion Grand Canyon and Bryce Canyon. And oh, wow. um, instead of hiking down into the Grand Canyon, we took a helicopter and we landed, you know, right on the bank of the Colorado River. And it was super exciting. And my, our sons um, made a comment when we were, we had about 30 minutes to explore the canyon floor when the helicopter landed. And um, they helped me walk around and uh, all that. And I explained, you know, how we were going to be down here, like living in here for three days on our original plan. And Will's was like, does it, does everything just look like this? And um, my husband who had camped and hiked in, in the Grand Canyon a lot was like, yeah, I mean, pretty much everything. And Wills was like, well, this is a way better decision. <laughs> 30 minutes at, with a helicopter. He was like, yeah, definitely glad we did this. And I'm like, oh, oh good. God. I'm glad I'm glad you preferred this over the other option. Um, That's so, you know, we, and we, we hiked a trail in Zion that was not handicap accessible. And they pushed me through like slippery, watery, you know, like sliding rock and mud. And I had like, I was like, yeah, you know, you're living life when your wheelchair has like a, you know, mud splatters all over the back of it. Um, so, you know, we're trying to just keep living and doing us even now with all the limitations and um, it's hard. I mean, every day is a struggle. I mean, I, I have just learned to just take it kind of one day at a time. Yeah. Well, that's all any of us can do. You know, you're just, you're just making the rest of us look really lazy is, is essentially <laughs> what you're doing. It's, um, it's quite, it's quite a wake up call. And, you know, it's funny, something you said earlier in the call, you know, like I give all this perspective back, but you know, the perspective that you're giving to others, you know, it's, I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of people that you've inspired now. I mean, mm -hmm. your Instagram is, is full of people who, who look to you every day for inspiration, um, for how to move forward despite pain. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, my listeners are probably getting sick of hearing me say this now, but a board member of mine, you know, first said it to me on one of my very first podcasts, but he said, you know, finding, purpose through your pain is mm -hmm. really ultimately God's old, you know, biggest calling to us. Mm -hmm. it, it's why we're all here. And mm -hmm. I just, again, will say uh, you're doing it more beautifully than anyone I've encountered. I just, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, like I said, I know firsthand how much your body is going through and, and to be able to, to wake up every day and not be defeated and not just lay there and say, uh, you know, I just, I can't take anymore. I just, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Well, I have those days too. 
I'm sure. I'm sure. I allow myself both those days. You know, I, I have days where I'm going to, you know, um, do a podcast and work on my book and, um, you know, do an interview and, you know, I pack it full of stuff. And then I have other days where I'm like, I'm going to just lay in my bed and read my book and watch a bunch of Netflix shows. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, doesn't half of America just do that second one anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, and you know what? I love all need you so much for saying that about um, my story because, you know, I, I, I have always been a storyteller and I, it brings me so much joy to have an outlet where I can share what's happening with us. And when people respond with how it's shaping their life and how it's changing their perspective, it is so empowering to me. And so, you know, I just, I think we're all made of stories and create stories, create connection Mm -hmm. and common ground. And gosh, I mean, we need a lot more of that right now. You know, we need to lean into our similarities and our shared have you ever have you ever heard the story about the mustard seed that Buddhist um mm, mm-hmm. you know the one I'm talking about with the with the girl who loses her son and she goes to uh, the healer in town or I guess it's maybe it's to Buddha I can't remember and says you know can you bring back my son and he says if you can go and find a neighbor who has a mustard seed but but they can't have ever experienced grief um, then I can I can heal your son and she goes door to door and she you know begs all of her neighbors, you know, do you have, do you have a mustard seed? And, you know, one after the other, they all say yes, but also one after the other, they can't say that they've never experienced grief or or hardship. And they all start sharing their stories. And through that, you know, she's healed. And then she goes back to him and says, you know, I, I have the mustard seed, but I no longer need him healed. Like I have found healing. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's through sharing our stories and sharing, our pain and sharing what we've gone through. Um, that's the only way to do it. And you know, the, the one real difference between, I will say cancer and Alzheimer's, it does seem as though the paradigm is shifting a little bit. Um, although from a demographic standpoint, not all the way, um, I've noticed, you know, in general, the minority communities as a whole are not as willing to share their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia, um, but there are starting to be some, it's just not as open and talked about yet as cancer. And it's funny mm-hmm. because, you know, cancer wasn't really open and talked about in the sixties either. You know, it was just right. kind of like, Oh, aunt Bessie, you know, she got sick and she died. You know, she maybe had the cancer. People didn't even talk about like specific cancer, what it was. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Alzheimer's is kind of going through that revolution right now. Um, but because it's not talked about, so much. And because it's not so open, people don't really know how to handle it, you know, and they don't really know how to approach it. I mean, I've watched almost all of my mom's friends, really all of my mom's friends just drop away. She doesn't have really anyone left. Um, There's like Mm -hmm. this one lady in her neighborhood that is still kind of friendly with her, but it's, it's a much more isolating process, you know? Well, and that's why sharing those stories are so important because we're not going to find that understanding or, you know, the fears of asking the questions to understand, you know, the, the uncomfortableness mm-hmm. that they feel in not knowing what to do unless 
it's talked about unless, you know, the stories are shared. And, um, you know, I think that that's like with metastatic disease, no one understood that when my cancer came back and what that meant and how that was different. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were like, but you're running, like, how is this possible? Like, and because, so I was just like, well, I just got to start telling people, like, I just got to start educating people. And, um, just by living my life, start explaining what's going on. Because honestly, even as an early stage breast cancer patient, I didn't really understand stage four breast cancer. I was too afraid to like really learn about it because it was like, it was so terrifying to me. And I'm sure that with Alzheimer's, there's so much fear and just like confusion wrapped up in the experience. And, and especially when it's something that's so drawn out like that, like you just don't know how to do it. And so I think think people are more that story. They're just more afraid about losing their minds. You know, they're like, Oh, I know my body's going to get weak one day. But that idea that like, you know, I think everyone has this image in their head. Like, I don't want to be sitting in a wheelchair drooling on myself and not knowing, you know, where I am or what day of the week it is. Like that Mm. sounds so scary, you know? Um, And it is, you know, it is. On the other hand, once you get to that point, you don't really know what, what's going on, you know, like, I don't, I don't know how much of your brain is still working enough to be able to process like, oh, I'm sad that I'm sitting here and I can't talk, you know, like who knows? Um, but there's all kinds of things to be afraid of, right? Like Mm -hmm. lots and lots. And I was at this Mm -hmm. wellness ranch, um, last week with another one of my board members and it's the most hysterical line I've ever heard in my life, but I just have been clinging to it since I left. I learned a lot last week, but this, this one just takes the cake. I did this art class on drawing and, um, she was talking about, you know, why we're afraid to, to draw. And it's because when we were little kids, we learned, you know, somewhere around four or five, you know, who knows where we were in elementary school. Lots of people remember the first time somebody looked at one of your drawings and says, you know, you're a bad drawer. That's not good. Or, you know, and, and there it is from there forward. We're like, I'm afraid to draw, you know, I can't be an Uh artist. And she's like, I mean, how many people walk into Pilates and say, oh, I'm, I'm so bad. I'm going to be a terrible, you know, Pilates student or, you know, what have you. And she said, but everybody across the board will say, well, I can't paint. I'm terrible. Or I'm a bad drawer. And she said, it's the same thing about life. You know, everybody's walking around here afraid about death. What's there to be about, what's there, um, what is there to be afraid about death? It's perfectly safe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I literally started dying laughing in the class and like three or four other women like kind of looked at me like, is she okay? Like, Oh my God, I love that. You know, what's so, why is that so funny to her? And I guess it's because like I've experienced, you know, I've experienced it enough. I'm um, so close to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I just loved it. I, I think I will live the rest of my life saying that line to myself, you know, once every day. Because I mean, ultimately we all, right? Like you're over 40, um, I think, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, you know, I, there's something about that number when we turn it everybody starts thinking about it a little bit, you know, I mean, we're not, well, you know, I have, I have shifted my perspective so much around this. I actually have talked to my friends constantly. I mean, I'm, I'm 40, I'm, I'm turning 45 next week. And um, I have friends, you know, lots of friends turning 50 and just dreading growing older. And I 
and just like, hold on, time out. You're like, no. The whole point is growing older. Like I am a hundred percent pro aging. Yep. And in this anti-aging world, I'm like the alternative That's so is good. death. Yep. So like the whole point is to get older. Yeah. And I'm, so like, yes, I'm sure there's a lot of things that are uncomfortable about that. And your body starts breaking down and there's all this stuff, but like, that's the point mm-hmm. you get to turn 50. You get to like, just really dream about the future and look ahead two, three, five years. I can't do that. And I just, I'm like, I want people to realize how precious that is and not be afraid of it because that's the whole point, right? It's like you want, you're here, you're living and you are, your body is healthy. Don't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm like, whenever anyone starts to say, oh God, I don't want to turn 50. I'm like, well, do you know what the alternative is? Because um, I could show you. <laughs> I'm like, is, yeah. And, and, and I hope that people have, you know, shifted a little bit in their perspective because they've thought about some of the things that I've said just about how precious it is. And um, I can't wait to turn 45. I really wanted to get to 50. It was kind of my, kind of my personal goal. Um, I don't, I don't know that that'll be possible, but I'm going to celebrate 45. You know what? One day at a time and you're going to try. I don't care if you have to start draining that lung every day at home. I'm pulling for you. And, um, we just have to do everything we have to do to keep you alive. That's it. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the NBA playoffs. You just got to advance. No, no extra points for, you know, winning by more than one, but we just have to keep you in. We just have yeah. to win. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just working on making my body, mind, and spirit as strong as I can and um, hanging on for science, trying to, you know, understand, you know, what else might be out there that could help me. And, um, and regardless of what comes next, regardless of what happens, I am just living one day at a time. Well, you're remarkable. I've now said that 17 times on this podcast. <laughs> I can't help oh. it. I mean, really, I just, I have such respect for you um, and admiration. And um, at the end of this podcast, you have to hang on because there's more I want to say to you um, <laughs> that I'm not going to make public. But uh, okay. I just thank you so much for coming on Mind What Matters and for being such a gracious guest and sharing so much intimately um, about your life and about what you've gone through. Um, I, we just, well, we really appreciate it, Laura, so much. Well, thank you for um, your interest and, and listening. And um, if any of your listeners want to learn more about me or Hope Scarves, um, I have a website, hopescarves.org. And I have a personal website called lauramcgregor.com where I have my blog and a short film and soon to be um book so um, awesome I can't wait to read the book and we're going to post all of this too um all this information will be um on Spotify and iTunes um, along with the podcast as well as on our social media platforms. So lots of ways to, to get in touch with Laura and to learn more about her story and about Hope Scarves. So you can share it with anyone 
um, that you know of who might be facing a cancer diagnosis.